Lord God, as we open up your word, we pray that you would open our hearts to it. And Lord, give us the, the truth that we need and then tell us how to respond to it. We pray these things in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. And we're going to begin just by asking a simple question. Paul refers in verse 11 of Ephesians 6 to the schemes of the devil. And I thought, well, let's begin by asking, what are those schemes? And I'm going to try to talk about some of this in a way that is a little bit uh, different than what you've heard before. Not that the content's any different, but just trying to help you to see these things from another angle. And I would tell you that as I considered thought through scripture, what, is the, what are the schemes of the devil? I would say that, that it seems to me that a great number, if not all of Satan's schemes, have something to do with trying to make you think you're the central character of the story. And I think the whole trick of the devil is to make you feel like you're the main figure in all of your circumstances. That you're kind of the, you're kind of the main person you're either the main villain or you're the main hero. That may not be completely accurate. I think this you are the central figure of your story scheme is sort of the proto-temptation that we see in the Garden of Eden, and it shows up over and over again in the scriptures. And one of the ways Satan can accomplish this you are the most important part of this story kind of scheme is to have you be thoughtless about spiritual warfare. So he would have you think that all of the worst thoughts you've ever had in your life are entirely you. And he would have you think that the various temptations you've experienced have their beginning and their end entirely in you. And he would have you think that when you are in friction with another brother or sister in Christ, that that's simply between you and him and no other factors are involved. He doesn't want you to realize that you are a small part of a much bigger cosmic thing going on. And he doesn't want you to be awakened, generally speaking, to the reality of spiritual warfare. Uh, if you begin to think about spiritual warfare, he will likely point out some nut job that you know who blames the devil for everything and say, you don't want to be like that guy, do you? Because he knows you're prideful and prone to comparison, and prone to overcorrection. And so even if you were to wake up to the seriousness of spiritual warfare, one of his quick rejoinders to get you to stop thinking about it so much would be to simply point out the excesses and the imbalances. But I think that would itself be just a scheme. I think that there is a false dichotomy, which is also a scheme that suggests that you either are obsessed with spiritual warfare or you don't think about it very often at all. I just don't think that's actually what the Bible presents. So acknowledging the reality of spiritual warfare is, on balance, a great defeat of the devil. My basic theory as I read through the scriptures and try to form some kind of comprehensive doctrine of Satan is that before Christ... The devil was a bully. And he was just prowling the school grounds, stealing people's lunch monies and souls. He specialized in terror. And one of the reasons that this, another factor in addition to the scripture that this, this, this theory has been, where it's come from for me is I tried to reconcile the difference between, say, my experiences in Africa, my experiences here. So my personal theory, as, I've, as I look through the scriptures, is that before the advent of Christ, before, before the resurrection of Christ, certainly, the devil was openly manifesting his strength and authority in the world so as to cause terror and cowering and so forth. But then Jesus came, and all of that terror and fear has a person that we can go to now. We, we, we have the name of Jesus. We, have, we, have, we can call upon Jesus. And so I think in cultures, and again, this is really just best I've tried to put together all this stuff. I think in cultures where Christ is known and named, 
it, would, it is more generally beneficial to hide rather than to arouse someone to potentially call out to the name of Jesus. Um, uh, to put it in screw tape letters, a terrified person is in danger of going to God for their comfort, so it is better to keep them numb and unaware. Right? A terrified person is in danger of, and I'm going to tell you a, an interesting story that I heard this week from a friend of mine that kind of points that out. And I'm really concerned that, I'm really concerned generally we're overusing balance in, in biblical places that doesn't belong. As if, as if there's errors, equal errors on both sides of this. As if the, the one error of being overly terrorized by Satan and the other error of being ignorant of him are equal. I don't think that's true. I don't. I don't think that's true. Because I think if you were terrorized, at least you would have some awareness of the spiritual realm. And I, don't, I, don't, I think they're both errors. Don't get me wrong. I don't think they're equal errors. And I don't think the Bible talks about it that way either. As I was thinking about all this this week, I remembered Jesus' words in John eight forty four, where he says of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. Now, what jumped out to me this time reading that was that this is an interesting way of explaining the fall. This is showing me, in some respect, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit viewed the fall of Adam and Eve. God told Adam and Eve, one day, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, right? This is the death that's in mind in this verse, John eight forty four. So Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate of it, and they did die spiritually and also introduced death into the world, and themselves became um, set, set apart for physical death. So there's no denying Adam and Eve's responsibility in this story, right? I mean, that's, that's solid all the way through Scripture. But there's another angle of this that Jesus sees without denying the culpability and responsibility of Adam and Eve, and that is to say, Satan murdered them. See, Jesus is, a, Jesus is seeing both sides. He's, he's seeing the culpability, the responsibility of Adam and Eve. He's also seeing that in some respect, Satan engaged in spiritual... In, in, in some ways, you could, you could argue that Satan engaged not only in spiritual murder, but that he introduced death itself through the temptation, and that there's a lot of, a lot of deaths to be... To sell it cheaply, a lot of deaths on his track record. This is just interesting to me because I think, from God's perspective, he is obviously, obviously far more sensible of Satan's role in things, and yet his knowledge of that doesn't keep him from holding people personally responsible. So I think one of the, the, the ways that Satan might lull you away from thinking well about spiritual warfare is to somehow create a false dichotomy. Martin Luther said that reason is the devil's prettiest whore. And what he meant by that was these false dichotomies that come up that, that seem like reason that aren't. So this false dichotomy could be something like, well, if I really think a lot about spiritual warfare, then doesn't that just lead to the inevitable me blaming the devil on everything and not taking any personal responsibility? Um, no, is the short answer. It doesn't. It doesn't. Your, your lack of personal responsibility, to be honest, was going to happen whether or not you believed in the devil. Uh, that's, just a, that's just a part of our nature. So Satan is active. There's a whole spiritual war going on. And I think that if we really thought about the way the Bible presents itself, we would understand that the Bible is actually not so concerned with us overemphasizing spiritual warfare, contrary to what we may have heard. So I would point you to this and ask this question. What is the beginning of the Bible like? Think about the devil. What is the beginning of the Bible like? What is the end of the Bible like? Does the devil appear anywhere at the end of the Bible? What's the point of a massive book like Job? Or at least what's one point of a massive book like Job? As so far as Satan and spiritual warfare goes, what, what are the Gospels like? Is this... Is this a thing that gets mentioned frequently or not? 
So what I'm asking you is look at the way God has taught you with his word and ask, is God, is God by the way he has composed his word kind of evidently concerned that we will overemphasize Satan? I'm not seeing that. Are there are the references to Satan in the New Testament rare? Or consider the structure of the book of Ephesians itself. Starts with the tremendous power you have been given in Christ. And this is what it ends with. A lesson of what that power is for, at least in part. And that is that you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers. There's a book written by a, uh, a secular intellectual. I think he's uh, University of Columbia. He wrote a book back in 1995 called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost Their Sense of Evil. And this is how he opens the book. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Never before have images of horror been so widely decimated or disseminated and so appalling from organized death camps to children starving in famines that might have been averted. Rarely does a week go by without newspaper and television accounts of teenagers performing contract killings for a few dollars, women murdered on the street for their purses, young men shot in the head for the keys to their Jeep. And these are only the domestic bulletins. And then he writes, the repertoire of evil has never been richer. We disagree with that, by the way, but let's just go with it. The repertoire of evil has never been richer. You never, yet never have our responses been so weak. We have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. And so the book is concerned, even as a secular intellectual with, there seems to be an evil that exists that is beyond the description of mere pathology and beyond the description of sociological systems and structures. But we've abandoned any kind of a doctrine that helps explain the darkness. And this, is, this, is, this is a guy who doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't primarily concerned by a belief in God. That's how he opens this book. And listen to how he closes it. My driving motive in writing this book has been the conviction that if evil, with all the insidious complexity which Augustine attributes to it, if evil escapes the reach of our imagination, it will have established dominion over us. So he is concerned that as soon as we dismantle and throw away for the sake of modernity, and having a materialistic and scientific and psychological and sociological explanation for everything, he's concerned that as soon as we do that, that the darkness will have won. As soon as we stop naming it, as soon as we stop seeing it, as soon as we stop contending against it. So I believe that one of the schemes of the devil is to simply make us thoughtless, about the existence, not only of the devil, but of spiritual warfare. Now look back at verse 10 of our text in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I've heard this verse quoted a lot. Having grown up in the church and been a Christian for a long time now, I've heard this verse quoted a lot. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But let's just be super clear about something, because this is the context in which I hear it quoted most often. This verse is not telling us not to view people as enemies. It's actually not what this verse is saying. It's saying we don't contend against flesh and blood. But this verse is not telling us we don't have human enemies. If, if the verse were saying that, it would be in contradiction with what Jesus says, for instance, in Luke 6, when he says to love our enemies and do good to those who hate you. Or in Romans 
12, when Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. The Bible has a category for human enemies. This text is not written to tell us that we don't contend against people. We do. We simply do. It's just the way life is. This verse is telling you that you need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God because our enemies are stronger than mere flesh and blood. That's the point of this verse. The point of this verse is not to tell us you don't have humans who are your enemies. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is you have enemies that are not merely flesh and blood. We are in a fight with spiritual forces, rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. And that's the idea. Just this, I would say it this way. Don't think that you're in a battle with mere humans. You're in a battle with monsters. Uh, one, one commentator says this, what is most important is that the apostle would not have his readers underestimate, this is the key, underestimate the power of the forces against him. We may bring out the emphasis by, origin, by a, an original translation, and, and that original translation would be something like this, not for us is wrestling against flesh and blood. In other words, we got a whole bigger problem than flesh and blood. Now, look back again at verse 12. Let's clear up another misconception. The point of verse 12, which says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. The point of that verse is not to send some of us down the road of creating a taxonomy or, um, or management chart of the various inst- entities listed there. That would be... That would be an overextension of what's going on here. That would be an overemphasis on spiritual warfare. Paul is listing these, and he's simply saying, not only are you fighting monsters, but they're organized. They have hierarchy. There's some military system of structure uh, inherent to the spiritual forces that we are battling against. R. Kent Hughes says it this way. They are intelligent beings portrayed in scripture as rational and communicative. They operate within a hierarchy dependent on issuing, receiving, and carrying out orders. They wage war against God, righteous angels, and us. Intelligence gathering, strategy, deploying troops, communicating battle orders, and reporting on the results of engagement are all aspects of warfare. And honestly, at this point, I feel much better because I just think sometimes, maybe, maybe more often than we do, we just need to remind ourselves, hey, we're in a war. We're, we're, we're in a war. And, and it isn't. You're not, the, you're not the central part of the story. You're not even number two, right? Uh, there are forces at work. And yes, you are a great sinner. And you are capable of dark things. But friends, it, none of it happens. Go back to John 6, 44. None of it happens in a vacuum. There's always an enemy. There's always a tempter. There's always an accuser. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Your life is not happening in a vacuum or a bubble. It is happening on a battleground. All of it. One of the devil's little sneaky things is to make you think that none of that's going on and it's just a you thing. And listen, there's plenty of you to go around, right? We can blame you for a lot of things, but but do not be bullied into thinking that all of this in your life is merely a you thing. I'm officially raising the alarm, as Paul does in this text when he says, keep alert. Keep alert. So that's one way the devil, I think, schemes. He schemes by, especially in the Christian life, by being subtle enough, most frequently to being subtle enough, to keep us from putting on the armor of God. To lull us into a false sense of security. 
But suppose you wake up to that reality, and maybe, Lord willing, through the Spirit this morning, that reality is more real to you than it was 10 minutes ago. And suppose you wake up to that reality. Well, there's a second scheme I'd like to tell you about, and this one I think is also maybe thought of in a different way, but I really think this could be helpful to you. Um, I think the second scheme is by getting you to put on the wrong armor. Um, Suppose you do begin to wake up to the reality that you're in a war and that you're not only contending against flesh and blood, but against authorities and rulers and principalities and powers. And suppose God allows you to break through the barrier of materialism and see this world as more than mere psychological, sociological factors. And you're like, okay, I'm in a war. Next scheme, I think, is to get you to grab the wrong armor. You see, all of us, no matter whether you were saved when you were six or saved when you were 16 or 26 or 36 or whatever, all of us, just because we are, we are of the flesh and now of the spirit, all of us have two sets of armor. And one of them is like real and one of them is the kind of thing you'd buy at the Halloween store down the street. It's a total facade. It's a total sham. But when you were without Christ, you had some fake armor um, that you would use to kind of make your way through the world. And so in a way, there's almost like, it'd be nice if we could just throw that set away and it just didn't, it just wasn't in your room anymore. But unfortunately, it's like in your closet, there's, and this is just the way it's going to be until you die. There are two sets of armor in your closet, and one of them is Christ's, and one of them is the thing you, the, the cheap, shabby stuff you used before he saved you. Or it's, it's just, it's, it, it doesn't work at all. And so when the arrows start flying, and you wake up to the reality of spiritual warfare, there'd be a really good idea if he could get you to run into your closet and grab the, the Halloween costume instead of the real deal. And I want to help you think through, well, what's the difference? Like, like, what do you mean by two sets of armor? And, well, what's the difference between the, the, the good one and the one that doesn't work? Well, look back at verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So I'm going to count these on my hand if you want to join me. Uh, the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. So you've got these armor, these pieces of armor. And I would contend indeed that you do have a counterfeit one of these, every single one. And I, I, I won't go into detail. We're in a bit of a, we've got a full day today. I, I won't take forever. But I would say that, that there are counterfeit pieces of armor, and one of them that I think you would understand pretty quickly is if I said, put on the breastplate of righteousness that is Christ's righteousness. Okay? Don't put on the breastplate of righteousness that is your righteousness. Can you see how before you were saved, that was the only thing you had to wear? And can you see how you did develop certain tendencies in that time and sense to rely on your own righteousness as a means of defense? Can you see how in many respects it's the same with truth and salvation? It's the helmet of Christ's salvation. And here's a, here's a tricky one. I think it's, it, it's either the helmet of Christ's salvation or it's the helmet of my confidence in my salvation. And I'm going to talk about that minute, um, uh, more in a minute. There's these kind of uh, counterfeit armor that you can put on, and you, you're, you're, you line up for the battle, but you're not dressed in Christ. You're dressed in your own efforts, your own righteousness, your, your own handle on things, your own perception or trust in the truth. And the, the, the armor mentioned here, and we don't have time to get into this, the armor mentioned here is just a, a callback from multiple passages in Isaiah in which Jesus Christ himself is presented as a king going into battle dressed in armor. I think the only one I, the only cross-reference I remember for sure is Isaiah 11, I believe. You, but you can look that up later if you'd like. I want to just focus in 
on verse 16 today and really get super practical in a way that will help you take up the shield of faith and extinguish the fiery darts. Look at verse 16 again. In all circumstances, all right, let's pause there for a second. Since we are told to wield, hold the shield of faith in all circumstances, one of the things, one of the implications is that the devil has arrows for every circumstance, right? So one of the implications is, is that this, is, this has got to be just the way we do life. We've got to have this shield of faith with us at all times because in all circumstances, errors, arrow, fiery arrows have the propensity to fly. So back to verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, it also tells me another interesting thing. This is I got from Spurgeon. And that is that the shield of faith actually protects all other pieces of the armor. Uh, the word in the Greek for shield here tells us that this was the shield that was also, essentially, it's the, it's the Greek word for door. It was the size of a door. It was, it was the whole width of a human being, and it was the, basically the same height as a human being. It, it guarded the entire person. And so this shield of faith is sort of the thing that protects all of the other armor. Now let's just go through a few fiery darts that I actually happen to know, just through conversation, have been flung into people's lives in this church in you know recent days or, or somewhat recent days. And I'm going to try to hit four. I think I can do that. The first fiery dart would be the fiery dart of doubting your salvation. So I'll deal with that one. Um, another one would be the dart of regret, fiery dart of regret. Now, what I'm asking is, how do I hold the shield of faith against that and against that? And how do I know that the shield I'm holding is the shield of Christ and not my shield? So we've got doubting your salvation. Let's talk about that for a minute. Regret. Let's talk about that one for a minute. Relational uh, friction. Let's talk about that. And let's round it out by talking about nagging guilt. Okay, so we'll do doubting salvation, regret, relational friction, nagging guilt. And we'll remember, we don't want to forget the two basic schemes that we've identified that seem to apply across all different kinds of darts, all kinds of different circumstances. Number one, make you think that there aren't any darts. Number two, get you to grab the wrong shield when you finally wake up and realize there are darts. Well, how would we think about all of this that we've learned this morning in discussion of doubting your salvation. First thing is to understand that chronic doubt of your salvation is almost certainly, at least partially, a satanic attack. This is not, again, this is not you in a snow globe. This is you and a lion in a snow globe. It's terrible. No, uh, There is almost certainly some element of satanic scheming at work when it comes to the chronic doubt of one's spiritual state in Christ. And, and this, is, this is obvious if you think about it because his basic job description or one of his basic job descriptions on, on the devil's LinkedIn profile, at least the second bullet point down would be accuser of the brethren. Right, first, first, first bullet point would be uh, Murderer from the beginning, you know, maybe seconds liar, maybe third bullet point in proficiencies, accuser of the brethren. Now, what does that actually mean? Here's, I feel fairly sure I'm right about this. When you look at the book of Job, it's clear that Satan does not know that Job will endure till the end. I think, I don't know how to quite describe this. I don't know if the devil understands the perseverance of the saints. He certainly wouldn't understand it from personal experience, right? Which we'll get to later. You see, it seems to me that what's going on in Job is essentially he's going to fall away. I just don't know when and I don't know what it's going to take. But 
but, but, but no one sticks with God forever. And then when you get, so you just grab that thought and let's, let's fly into the New Testament. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Peter's being way too confident. And it's a day before the crucifixion of Christ. And Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And isn't that, seems to be flower sifter separating. Like, it seems to me that what he's saying there is, is Peter's not really his. Peter's not really yours. I just have to execute a little weight on him, put a little weight on him, and he will fall away. So I would suggest that it's possible that, not that, that Satan's role in your chronic doubting is one who actually doesn't know if you're really his. It, it's, it's a possibility. But to be sure, he has an interest in proving over and over and over again, that God's salvation is inferior to the temptations he has to provide and inferior to our own waywardness. He has every interest and inclination to, 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 to prove to all things that our waywardness is stronger than God's keeping power. So, if you're doubting your salvation, I think I need to get you out of a space where you're forgetting about the devil. I need to get you into a space where you understand at least sometimes that it's very possible that the chronic doubting is indeed a fiery dart. And now, now that we're in that space, I need to make sure you pick up the right shield. How do you know if you picked up the right shield when you're fighting the fiery dart of doubt? Here's what it will sound like in your head when you're holding the wrong shield. I really do love you, God. I really do believe. I really did pray to receive Christ, and I really meant it. The false shield of faith is a shield of faith in your own faith. And you can't have faith in your own faith. That's what the false shield of faith is. The false shield of faith will constantly go back to the last time you prayed to receive Jesus and ask, what was the quality of my faith when I said it that time? So if you're fighting against the fiery darts and you find yourself, when you're struggling with this, and friends, I've struggled with this. I bet you everybody in this room struggled with this. Probably the only people that haven't struggled with this are the people who aren't saved. <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't. That could be really brutal. I don't, don't entirely take that to be true. Uh, I, I'm not here to dislodge anyone's assurance this morning at all. Uh, when you struggle, listen to yourself and ask, what shield am I actually wielding right now? And I believe you will find that many times you have been tricked into wielding your, the shield you bought at the Halloween store when you were eight. You know? The shield that is Christ. It's not a bunch of eyes, right? It's a bunch of he's. When you wield a shield of faith, you'll hear a lot fewer eyes. You'll hear a lot more he's, and you'll start saying things like, he's the author and perfecter of my faith. And any who come to him, will by, he will by no means cast out. And God saves all who will trust in him. And he has saved me, and he will save me, and so on. I don't want to move on too quickly from this. Three times in Ephesians 6, uh, in, our, in our passage, Paul talks about taking a stand. You know, in, in a battle, I mean, even, in, even in wrestling and combat, there, there, there's always a line where you have to know in advance, this is the line I will not cross. And here's, friends, if you're doubting, I'm, I'm going to let you kind of figure some of this out on your own. I'm happy to talk with you. But here's the line I do not want you to cross. I do not want you to give up on this, this line. To me, giving up on this point would be, would be really bad. And that is this. You want to doubt your salvation? Fine. Here's why you cannot, cannot give in to the enemy. Do not doubt his word when he says, I will save you if you call out to me. Guard that line with your life. 
Because once he breaks through that line, you have nothing. And none of us have anything. You see, if you get pushed up against the line of God meant, when he, God, God meant it when he said, anyone who comes to me, I will not, by no means cast out. If you get pushed all the way back up to that line and you're still doubting, here's what I want you to do. Fine. God, please save me. Okay? Now, later you'll doubt that one too. But you'll be doubting the wrong things. Don't, don't give in a single inch on this basic doctrine. God saves those whom call, who call out to him. God saves those who call out to him. The devil will want you to violate the character of God. This is the line you must not cross. Don't cross this line. Here's. Here's five verses, four verses to help you not cross that line. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's Psalm 51, 17. John 6, 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never drive away. John 6, 37. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 11. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. One more. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John eleven twenty five through 26. This is, if you're struggling with doubt, the line you must never surrender do not allow this. Let, let the devil, if, if you're going to have to go through this and he's going to have to question your faith and question your character and so forth, fine. Do not surrender this basic theological conviction. God doesn't hear prayers of, Lord Jesus, please save me. I'm a sinner and I need you. He doesn't hear those prayers and say, no. He hears those prayers and says, yes. Don't let any sophisticated theology, don't let any deceitful words creep in that take that basic sentiment away from you. And there are all sorts of systems that could do that, right? Including hyper-Calvinism and, and, and a million others. Arminianism, for sure. Don't give up that line. Stand firm on that line. Don't let it go. All right, quickly. How do you deal with accusatory regret? Some people are just consumed with constant feelings of regret over past decisions. And it's almost like they spend half their lives looking in the rearview mirror, wishing they had done things differently. Again, I want you to remember that you are not alone in this, either for good or for bad. And that there could be someone who has accusatory interests, who is routinely giving you fodder for living in the past and, and in, in some sick way thinking you matter more than you, your choices have mattered more than they actually did. So a really close friend of mine, not, not a member of this church, but really close friend of mine had a dream about two weeks ago. And at the beginning of the dream, he was, uh, he was in a room alone in his dream and there was this kind of nice um, older wholesome, gentle man telling him, you know, back when you quit that job, you really should have stuck it out longer. You're only five years away from pension, being vested in a pension. Remember when you, 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 you should have taken this job, but you didn't. And remember when you, you bought this thing at like 18% interest and you had to pay for it for like five, you know, for 10 years or something. And, and remember this and remember that. And, and my friend is just sitting there kind of like, yeah, I do remember all that. And the person speaking is so folksome and winsome that it kind of just like, okay, you know, that's true. But the list just kept going. And every time, you know, there'd be another scene in this dream and the guy's voice is a little louder. And he's listing other things that my friend should have to regret. And then the voice gets a little louder and a little louder. And now this once winsome, folksome kind of man is screaming at the top of his lungs. And my friend looks around and there are thousands of people sitting and observing this, this accusation. And at the, at, the, at, at the crescendo of this nightmare that was unfolding, 
this man who was screaming said to my friend, that's why you have no choice but to wake up right now, go get in your car, and end your life. And my, my friend just whoo, shot up, tears flooding out of his eyes, fully broken out in sweat. And we talked about it later and said, in that case, the devil really overplayed his hand, right? Because if he had just stayed kind of mid-range, he could have for many, many, many years kept this pattern of regret that my friend actually was struggling with He was struggling with regret, a lot of regret. And it was as if God allowed Satan in that moment to just overplay his hand so that my friend could see this regret that I'm experiencing, it's not all me. I'm I'm in a battle here. Now, how do you how do you fight regret? Well, just super quickly, how do you know you have the right shield? It'll be the same thing as the one before. It'll a shield of eyes. I will do better. I need to learn from this. I've really got to get a more disciplined. So I, 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 I. It's a role for a lot of that stuff. But that, that, the flaming arrows, it's not the time for that. The flaming arrows is, there is a God who loves me, who has providentially overseen every single circumstance in my life. And even in those circumstances in which I, what I meant for evil, God meant for good. There is someone providentially over me, God, who even when I have been careless and foolhardy, he has been careful and fatherly, and he will keep me and has been keeping me. And this story, this story full of all sorts of mistakes and sins, guess what? One day, he's going to redeem it all, tie a big fat ribbon on it, and it's going to be another memorial to him for eternity. That's what the shield of faith would look like there. We can do relational conflict and nagging guilt together. Because in both senses, it's simply an overemphasis of sin. An overemphasis on sin. One of the chief schemes of the devil is to give you discernment of sin without discernment of grace. Let me repeat that. One of the chief schemes of the devil is to give you discernment of sin without discernment of grace. In your relationships, Maybe you can see how that goes, right? Your loved one, the person you really do love, for some reason in this season, all you can see is the stuff that annoys you, like even the way they chew, you know, whatever. You know, you, you can see their sins, man. You can, you can really see them. You can actually see their sins. And you've got, oh, you're, 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 you're like the Sherlock Holmes of sin, you know, you see it all. But you're like the Ray Charles of grace. <laughs> right? Like, that. Where, where, where does that come from? Because like, that's not Christ. Christ is the Sherlock Holmes of both. It's, what's going on here? Why, why all of a sudden is this person's grievous errors just everywhere to me? And yet I see almost no... Evidence of grace, it's not because it's not there. It's it's because something else is in my sandbox other than me. This is the same problem that comes with guilt because this would just be all of that Sherlock Holmesiness with sin aimed inwardly. One of the chief schemes of the devil then is to give you a discernment of sin without a discernment of grace. And I think If you thought about it, you'd say that the original temptation in the garden involved the discernment of good and evil apart from God. So in in, in one way, all of the things we've been talking about, all of these fiery darts all involve that idea. There's a discernment of your own sin, but that discernment is disconnected from the gospel. Or there's a discernment of someone else's sin but that discernment is disconnected from the gospel. You know, it's almost as if um, God got up and gave a speech. And it wasn't well attended, but it was recorded. And in the speech, he gets up and he says this. You have been quite wicked. He says this to, to, to the world. 
you have been quite wicked, and you have relentlessly turned your back on me and embraced the very things I hate. And then he says, and yet I have chosen to save some of you from your certain perishing by giving you my son who died for you to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and adopt you as my child. And God's giving this press conference with a speech, right? And almost no one's there. And then Satan's in charge of guess what? The mass media, of course, the mainstream media. So this, in this metaphor, Satan's in charge of the media. And he takes that speech, right? And he's got it recorded. The devil, the, the devil producer has got it recorded. And he just cuts the second half off, right? And then he just plays over and over again in our heads toward ourselves or toward others. The first half. The first half, just to remind you, being, you have been quite wicked. <laughs> and that you have relentlessly turned your back on me and embraced the very things I hate. The first half of the speech is pretty rough. Second half of the speech, very important. I have sent my son to pay the price for this great sin. And what Satan specializes in is Cutting up that speech, throwing away the second half, and then replaying the first half in your head, either towards yourself or towards others, over and over and over again. And here's why that works. He actually makes us feel a certain measure of spiritual maturity and discernment when we are able to discern sin. He actually makes us, it's actually a, 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 a what's the word? He actually plies our pride by telling us, if you see sin well, you're really mature. It's not true, by the way. It takes far more maturity to see grace than it does to see sin. It's like, how hard is it to find a straw wrapper outside right now? How hard is it to find a diamond? How many skills do you need to find a cigarette butt on the uh, exit ramp? And how much skill would you need to find some gold? Discerning sin is part one. Discerning grace. That's what maturity is. And so in these two instances where you feel nagging guilt or when you see nagging guilt in someone else, guys, the answer is someone's been encouraging you to disconnect the discernment of sin from the discernment of grace. And that's a fiery dart that you need to repel I need to repel that dart with Christ himself. In Rome, these shields were made out of leather. They were, they were made out of wood, and they were covered with leather. Just bear with me. This is really interesting to me. They hold this shield covered in leather, which is kind of what made it flame retardant. And it's like what they're doing in that moment is they're hiding behind the death of something else. Right? Like, we had to kill a cow for this door shield. And, and friends, that's, that's what the shield of faith is. The shield of faith is Jesus Christ crucified. Some got some cross wood in there. And you got some Jesus in there. And, and Jesus Christ is the shield of faith that you hold up against the fiery darts. So... Whenever the enemy throws at you, the answer is always the same. The living God has died for me. You could tell the devil, you're God. God, devil, you're God. The one who causes you to tremble, the one who created you, he died for me. When, Satan, when you fell from heaven, your God did not lift a finger to save you. When I fell, he dove from his throne to save me. I can't explain it. It doesn't make sense to me. But devil, I simply matter far more to God than you do. And those are just the facts. It doesn't make any sense to me either. And you know what else? It's weird. That doesn't make any sense to me either. Is I one day will be a face in a massive crowd of saints who observe and celebrate 
your downfall, O devil. But because I'm in Christ, you're never going to celebrate my downfall. And you know, this, this whole shield wielding thing is kind of addictive. And then you, you think, well, I might as well throw the sword a couple times too, which is the word of God. And I'll just introduce communion with this. I've already got my shield out. I might as well get my, play with my sword a little bit here too. And Romans 8.31 would be a good place to throw the sword. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us also all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's, it's God who justifies. And one more little parry and thrust with the sword. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God. And you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So today, as you come and partake of the Lord's table, come with joy. That God in Christ has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that you are born into a battle. Thank God for him reminding of it, us of it. But you have been equipped with one heck of a shield of faith. Christ himself who died. Let me pray and we'll partake. Lord God, please bless this time as we observe the giving of your body and blood for us. To free us from the enemy. And to make us your children. And Lord, we are just your children. Thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.